This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, May 15th, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams, and this is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Later on the show, Jerry Van Dyke was nominated for four Emmy Awards and for years made his home in Arkansas. We'll trace his career with the help of archives from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History, Randy Dixon from the Pryor Center, with us in just a bit. First, understanding maternal mortality. Arkansas has the highest maternal mortality rate in the nation, with 40 deaths per 100,000 live births between 2018 and 2020. That's according to an analysis by the Kaiser Family Foundation. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith recently talked with Dr. Joe Thompson, the CEO of the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement, or ACI, about Arkansas's poor maternal mortality rate and what can be done to remedy it. This is certainly not the first time we've talked about maternal mortality and in this issue, especially here in the South. What can you tell us about this issue? What do people need to know? Rachel, unfortunately, these are the indicators that, that shine a light on how poorly we are able to deliver good quality care to our moms and, and to their future infants. The United States ranks very far down in the industrialized countries. Uh, uh, we have about 23 maternal deaths per 100,000. Dr. Thompson said the next developed country is France at 8.7, so almost three times more maternal deaths in the United States than the next industrialized country. And unfortunately, Arkansas has the worst maternal mortality statistics of all of the 50 states. So while this is a very clear indicator, it really is a canary in the coal mine of how we are treating our moms as they go through their pregnancy and their birthing experience. The two biggest factors in those preterm deaths, pre-existing conditions and underreporting. Well, I think frequently early in pregnancy, we have you know pregnancy losses that, that are underreported and, and probably underrecognized. Ideally, every pregnancy would be a, a planned pregnancy with the mom and, and her support team, hopefully a spouse in, in preparation. They'd have early access to high quality care within which they got education for what to anticipate and, and treatment for conditions that may cause complications. And then when those complications or, or risks do present themselves that they're recognized early and managed appropriately. Unfortunately, in our state, we have high rates of, of maternal hypertension and diabetes before the mom gets pregnant. Those conditions frequently get far worse during the pregnancy and may cause either complications that impact the loss of the pregnancy or premature deliveries that then convey risk onto the newborn. In Arkansas, the CDC, or Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, reported that the state in 2022 suffered a 40.4 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births, well above the national average of 32.9. Well, our Arkansas statistics for all of our moms show that we have a much higher maternal mortality than even the national average. But some subgroups, and particularly African-American, Hispanic, the Marshallese, have even higher rates of maternal mortality, you know, reflecting access issues, education issues, and unfortunately, differences in treatment because of their racial and ethnic backgrounds. These are all areas that we should be concerned about, aware of, and focused to work on. I think we need to recognize that we're a poor state, so many of our young families have stressors on them whether it's issues around transportation, whether it's competing time costs, if you're working an hourly job and you take off from that to go get prenatal care, you don't get paid. There are reasons that we have people that don't avail themselves of the services. We need to look at all of those social determinants or, or zip code risks, if you will, and make sure that people can get care early in their pregnancy to get the best outcomes possible. The other big concern with maternal mortality, reproductive deserts. We've recognized and, and groups have studied across the nation, you know, racial biases in the healthcare system. Uh, African-Americans with hypertension maybe having less likely prescription for medications or with pain having less pain medications provided. The same is true, unfortunately, within our maternal delivery system. We have women that may not get the same level of attention because of the color of their skin. And so I think these are you know, inherent biases that we need to recognize from the data, draw them out and have discussions. But I wanna offer a caution in Arkansas, it's not only our minority women that are suffering, our majority, white women, 
have a 50% higher mortality likelihood in pregnancy than the national average. So this is an across the board threat. It happens to rest more heavily among our minority and, and uh, ethnically um, challenged populations. Um, but this is a need for us to look at across the board in our delivery system within the state. Dr. Thompson hammered one point over and over that these numbers are worsened for uninsured and low-income families. Again, unfortunately, the numbers don't show us in a good light. We have about 10% of our delivering mothers that are uninsured. This is despite the fact that we have expanded Medicaid coverage and even undocumented individuals, if they're pregnant, can get coverage through our Medicaid program. And we have about 20% of delivering moms that did not get adequate prenatal care. So one in five are not getting those upstream issues addressed and taken care of. Uh, we are a rural state. We do have limited resources. Uh, so there are areas of the state where it is a desert, if you will, where people can get good care. Fortunately, in our state, our health department does offer you know, prenatal care support in almost all of our county health offices across the state where private sector insurance may not be available. So we have a network. We need to strengthen that network and importantly, make sure people know of its availability, access it, and get the care that they need. You know, I think we have somewhat of a, a false assessment that, you know, 40 years ago, you had multi-generations kind of transmitting information and helping new moms learn how to be a mom. Now we have first-time moms that haven't had any education of how to be a mom, and we assume that it's all natural, and, and that's just not the case. We really need to encourage, you know, new moms on what appropriate, appropriate care is for themselves before they deliver, and then also anticipatory care early in their pregnancy of how they're gonna care for their child, whether they're gonna breastfeed their child, what other you know, support services they may need to get in place before the child is present, because those first few days after a delivery are not the time that you want to be scrambling to find the support that you need. Nearly half of the counties in Arkansas, or 37 counties, are maternity health care deserts, defined as counties without any hospitals or birthing centers offering obstetric care and without any OB providers, according to a report by the March of Dimes analyzing health resources and services administration data. I asked Dr. Thompson how preventable these deaths are. I think there are two answers to the question of how preventable are these deaths. One is recognizing when a mom is getting into trouble you know, in the acute phase of her delivery or, or an event that, that precedes, you know, her anticipated time of delivery, recognizing that and intervening to avoid the worst outcome, maternal mortality. But the other end of that spectrum is education and engagement. Uh, we have eight states in the United States that offer doula services through paid for through Medicaid to help educate and guide moms on having a healthy pregnancy. Um, we pay for it in a preterm baby in the neonatal nursery, you know, at more than $1,000 a day. And we could actually upstream have a doula help moms prevent that preterm delivery that separates the mom from the baby and starts the baby down a much more expensive and sometimes less healthy uh, pathway. You know, birth is a natural process. Uh, we've been having births for a long time or we wouldn't be here. Uh, we have medicalized births to take care of high-risk mothers and their infants, but in the process, I think somehow, you know, separated the normal process of pregnancy, labor, delivery uh, from a natural experience. The doula is an advocate for the mom to help the mom have a voice inside the delivery room. You know, I think a well-prepared mom who expresses and has an advocate for what she wants her delivery to be like is probably the best setup for a good delivery and a good outcome. We mentioned the Medicaid programs in eight states, unfortunately not ours yet, that will support doulas in a pregnancy to help educate and support the mom even through and into the delivery room. I would encourage our private sector also to think about that. I know Walmart does support doulas in some regions of the country for their employees, and there are opportunities really for all of us to come together, both the public and the private sector, to ensure that our moms have the best opportunity for a healthy pregnancy, a safe delivery, and a great first year of their newborn's life. That was Dr. Joe Thompson, CEO of the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith.
That's the first episode of a three-part series analyzing maternal deaths. The second episode will air next week. Arkansas Community Foundation has a vision for communities in Arkansas to become the places your kids will want to raise their kids. By strategically funding local nonprofits, ARCF provides not only resources, insight, and inspiration, but also statewide impact to build better communities. More at ARCF.org. Ahead this hour, Louise Thaden was an aviation pioneer starting her career in Bentonville. Now, another Bentonville resident is taking Louise Thaden's life story to Washington, D.C. She was a very humble person. She didn't crave the attention that she really, truly deserved. So it just so happened that other people took the spotlight while Louise Thaden was making the world more friendly for women. That's ahead on today's Ozarks at Large. Do you have an old car sitting around, and are you looking for a hassle-free way to get rid of it while making a tax-deductible charitable contribution? Donate it to KUAF. We work with cars, charitable adult rides, and services to provide you with this unique way to support our programs. All you have to do is call 855-500-RIDE. That's 855-500-7433. Or visit careasy.org and schedule a pickup. This is Ozarks at Large, a coalition of 23 national health-related nonprofit agencies expressing concerns over Arkansas's early Medicaid disenrollment numbers. The state's Medicaid program recently announced that it had disenrolled more than 72,000 individuals, mostly for failing to renew their coverage. It was the first major removal in three years in the state because of the end of the COVID-19 public health emergency. Talk Business and Politics reports the nonprofits have called on Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders to pause the process. They called the high rate of terminations unacceptable and a cause for alarm. The governor's office says they have a systematic plan to evaluate and assist those whose Medicaid health care coverage is being redetermined. Tomorrow, the Washington County Prosecutor's Office will host a failure-to-appear warrant clinic at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Fayetteville. Whitney Doolittle is the deputy prosecutor for the county and says this amnesty day evolved out of a backlog of cases that accumulated during the pandemic. We really had a backlog of criminal cases after the COVID pandemic where we were shut down for almost about 14 months. So that's where it originated from. Really, it's, a, it's an opportunity for people who have felony FTAs in Washington County to come in and have their FTA forgiven and either plead to their cases or to get back on the docket. This clinic is one alternative the county is examining in an effort to reduce jail overcrowding. Doolittle says just in District 6, she has more than 400 failure-to-appear cases. She says while this program isn't resolving all of those cases, any relief helps. And the last one was in February, and we had about 30 to 45 cases taken care of. Either they were allowed to get back on the docket or they pled to their charges and started probation or SIS or something like that. She says anyone with a failure to appear warrant or other low-level felony offense is able to come to the clinic without an appointment. There will not be any law enforcement present, so they don't need to fear about getting arrested if they show up because they have an FTA warrant out there. There will be public defenders there to talk to them about their cases, and all they have to do is bring themselves and talk with the public defender and hopefully get their case resolved or we get them back on the docket. The clinic is tomorrow from 9 until 2 at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Fayetteville. Drivers will see some changes in exit numbers along I-49 beginning today. Lane closures are planned so crews can update the exit numbers along the Bella Vista Bypass. Changes will be implemented at the last four northbound exits. Exit 93 will become exit 91. Exit 99 changes to 97. Exit 102 will become exit 100. And exit 104 now will be known as exit 102. The changes mean the new exit numbers will accurately reflect mile destinations. Buffalo National River Partners will host a free talk titled Project Caves tomorrow evening at 6.30 at North Arkansas College's South Campus in Harrison. Nathan Wendell, a science teacher at Deer High School, will talk about experiences he's had while caving in northern Arkansas, including along the Buffalo National River watershed. Rodney Arnold chairs the educational committee of the Buffalo National River Partners and serves as executive director of North Arkansas College Foundation, as well as vice president of institutional advancement. Arnold says Wendell's talk will be of interest to both park visitors and residents.
he he's got vast experience in uh, knowledge when it comes to our local regional caves, and we've asked him to come kind of you know talk about caves, the importance they play to the ecosystem and to our environment. You know how to appropriately go through a cave and and to experience the cave uh, with leaving little trace behind that you were there. Wendell is scheduled to illustrate how Ozark Caves pre-settlement served as shelters, burial grounds, and ceremonial sites for at least ten thousand years. He'll also introduce Project Caves a seven-day, six-night summer residential program for gifted high school students that provides an authentic immersion in science outside of the classroom. Activities will center on investigative studies of cave ecosystems, karst geology, bat populations, and hydrogeology. And I, I think that project and what it does will, will definitely leave a long-lasting impact on the health and the vitality of our caves. And, you know, if you can just educate one at a time, uh, we're going to make a, a, a significant impact over time with those that we try to reach out to that are going to be going out spelunking or so forth. And so we, we feel it's important to provide this educational service to our community to, to help protect and uh, preserve some of our most valuable assets and specifically the Buffalo National River. Both University of Arkansas track and field teams are SEC champions again. Both teams won outdoor titles this weekend in Baton Rouge. For the women's program, it's the 10th SEC outdoor title, the 22nd conference outdoor title for the men's program. Both indoor teams won national championships earlier this year. It became Dick Van Dyke's brother. I mean, no one ever called my name. This is Dick Van Dyke's brother. And so it really put a damper on me. It's it tough to do. Randy Dixon with the... David and Barbara Pryor, Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History, is with me. Who'd we Hello, just, Kyle. Hello, Randy. Who'd we just hear? That was Jerry Van Dyke. Actor, comedian. Yes. Yeah. And if, if you haven't heard of him, you should have. Yes. Now, you may know him as the younger brother of Dick Van Dyke, who you would know from Mary Poppins and, of course, the Dick Van Dyke show right. that ran for years during the 60s. But um, Brother Jerry had his own yes, he did. successful career, maybe not as successful, uh, or maybe he didn't get the credit that he deserved. But um, we're talking about him today because he actually lived a good chunk of his life in Arkansas, in Hot Spring County, near and Malvern. He, yeah, and even if work took him away, um, he still owned that property. I mean, he never gave it up. No, no, yeah. and um, his widow still lives there. Excellent, uh, Shirley. And uh, well, let's start off. the The Van Dyke brothers, yes, uh, were born in Danville, Illinois. Uh, Dick was born in 1925, and Jerry in 31. So there was a six year difference mm -hmm. between the two, and they both sort of took the same path. They performed. Uh, on stage originally, not not ever together. They did right. separately. But um, in 1961, Dick landed that big network show, the Dick Van Dyke Show on CBS. And uh, Jerry was on several times as a guest, even back during the first season, and he played Dick's brother. Um, it was a part written for him by Carl Reiner, uh, Carl Reiner saw his stand-up act, and saw Jerry, Jerry's stand Jerry's stand-up act, and uh, Dick was telling him this, that his brother sleep sleepwalked. Mm -hmm. How do you sleepwalked? Sleepwalked. Sleepwalked. Yeah. Yeah. Sleepwalked. Um, and so Carl Reiner, who was the producer of the show, wrote this character for him, and he's a comedian who has stage fright and he can only perform <laughs> when he's asleep so um well let's uh let's hear him doing part of his he actually did his own stand-up routine during the show and here it is for the first number i like to do a medley of banjo songs that you don't get a chance to hear on the banjo too often and you can all be pretty glad of that <laughs> and here it is Goes up to a guy in the street and he says, Say, 
He says, can you give me 15 cents for a sandwich? And the guy says, I don't know, let me see a sandwich. <laughs> if Carl Reiner says, I've seen your stand-up and you're funny and you're enough, funny. You're funny. Yeah. Carl as, Reiner's not going to pull as, as someone they'd on. they say, Carl Reiner knows funny. Yes. And he's funny. Yes. Yeah. So he, you know, continued his career. Uh, he still did stand-up um, and even had a co-starring role on the Judy Garland variety show. Hmm. So he, his specialty, of course, you heard him playing the banjo right. and singing, telling jokes. And actually, uh, John Wayne saw him on television and personally called him and said, I want you to be in one of my movies. John Wayne calls Jerry Van Dyke and says, I want you to be Yeah, here. and Jerry didn't believe it was really John Wayne. He thought it was one of his buddies uh, who was an impressionist doing John Wayne, but he showed up at the polo club at the bar, and there was John Wayne. And he said, I've got this part in my movie I want you to see. So the movie was McClintock in 1963, and Jerry Van Dyke is playing his banjo and singing, but this is with... Uh, Stephanie Powers. To die like this is no disgrace. This is the time. This, this is the place for you. Just right for me. Well, it's so good I kind of hate to break this up. He would be in more movies, but we really remember him. Not not for his dramatic roles or in his roles in dramatic films, but right on, on the big screen. Right. He was he was uh, at his tops on the small screen. Now, in 1965, you would think his big break came because he was offered a starring role in his own mm -hmm. series, mm -hmm. his own network sitcom. So great, right? No, <laughs> not so great. It was a show called My Mother, the Car. But just don't sit there with your mouth hanging open. Say hello. Hello, Mother. Mother? We're not making this up. The concept of the show was that Jerry Van Dyke's character's mother, mother. had been reincarnated in a 1928 Porter yes. voiced by Ann Southern. Hilarity did not ensue. It did not, and it didn't help that it was placed. This was a scheduling nightmare. It was on Friday nights. Mm -hmm. The lead-in was Star Trek that you would think would be fine. If you remember, Star Trek bombed mm -hmm. when it originally aired. So you had Star Trek leading in, and then out of it, it was a weekly documentary. Eesh. So it kind of had several nails in it that's already. Not, that's not a night of entertainment that NBC puts up in its Hall of Fame. No. As a matter of fact, TV Guide ranked it the second worst TV show of all time. Oof. The first, Jerry Springer. Yeah, well, there you go. The Jerry Springer show. So <laughs> it's it's bad to kind of be ranked with that. Right. But here's the worst part. Okay. He turned down the part of Gilligan in Gilligan's Island, the pilot for Gilligan's Island, to do My Mother the Car. So um, there was a good reason. And KTV did an interview with Jerry in 1987, and this is from the archives that he explains why he did it. My mother, the car, in my defense, was on the air show, guaranteed. It wasn't a pilot. Gilligan was a pilot. And I, it may not have gone. My mother, the car, was guaranteed one year, money in the pocket. Do you gamble or do you take money in the bank? I mean, well, if, if I'm presented those two concepts and one is a sure thing and one's a gamble, yeah. I'm taking the, the sure thing. Because yeah. neither of those look good on paper. Yeah. And he was, you know, he went from that mm -hmm. and did, uh, I think, a couple other shows and then was doing guest appearances. The best part was he met his wife, Shirley, 
who's a Hot Spring County resident. And so uh, they have a, I thought it was 600, uh, it's a 1,000-acre farm uh, with a man-made lake, mm. and uh, they moved back to Arkansas. Because during this time, even though my mother, the car, was a success, he was having success on the nightclub circuit. Oh, my gosh. He was she, not an unknown. Right. He was opening for Steve and Edie Gourmet yeah. uh, on cruise ships and in Vegas. I mean, they had... Um, one of the the big resort casinos had a, had an entire uh, hall built right, for him. Right. That that he was a regular there. But um, here's another KTV interview that he talks about his move to Arkansas. Years I've loved Arkansas from coming to Hot Springs to work from the days of the gambling. I started there when they had the gambling during the Faubus era, and I always loved Arkansas. And then. Uh, I met my wife in Hot Springs working there, uh, and uh, she was from here, and that's that's how I, I, I arrived here. Didn't he, for a while, have an ice cream shop or something, a soda shop? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, he, he uh, opened a theater and yeah. all, all that in Malvern. Yeah. And kind of revitalized downtown. Yeah. One of his daughters worked there, and, of course, his wife, Shirley, who's had a big influence on his life, um, still lives on that farm oh, near okay. Malvern, and I talked to her. I caught up with her last week, and um, she told me about how the move to Arkansas came about. He said, I'm getting out of L.A. I want to go back to the farm and build our house. And that's how we came in 1984. We brought my mother-in-law, which is Dick and Jerry's mother, Hazel, built her a little log cabin on the lake, and that's what built, we built the house, uh, that, uh, with the, film you, the film that you have. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's how that happened. And he said, well, I'm done. I'll just, I don't need to live in L.A. We're doing, performing around the country or on cruise ships and things like that. I don't need to be in L.A. And my TV career is over. I really am, uh, I'm just done, you know. I'm, by that time, he was uh, he was 51, I think, when we, when we built the house here. And so what happened? We get here, we get settled, we get my mother-in-law, everybody we're living near my with my family. It was a great time for us. Now, Jerry Van Dyke's uh, entertainment career is about to have a big third act. Oh, oh, yeah. You know, like she said, he thought it's over. Right. Um, and what changed was in 1989, a show called Coach. Uh, oh, I can't remember the fellow who played. Craig T. Nelson. Craig T. Nelson. And he played... Our Jerry played the assistant coach, Luther Van Dam, who was kind of a scatterbrained... Uh, Sweetheart. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But, um, you know, that show ran for nine seasons, and Jerry was nominated for four Emmys uh, four years in a row, consecutive. So why don't we listen to a clip? It's got a little bit of... A little bit of uh, Luther in it yeah. from uh, Coach. Can I get you something to drink, Coach? Uh, I'm not thirsty, Nick. <clears throat> Just bring him an iced tea. You want me to leave the menu? Uh, I'm, I'm not eating. Nick. Bring him a steak. <laughs> you want a salad or anything to start? No, I'll fix him a small one. <laughs> I just can't believe it. Oh, it wasn't that bad, Coach. 44 to 3? <laughs> I mean, I thought we had it inside us to beat those guys today. We did, Coach. It was just every time it started to come out, they pounded it back in. <laughs> I think we take comfort in one thing. I bet you a lot of people would have bet that we'd lose to Iowa by a lot more than 44 to 3. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a winner tonight in our Guess the Score Win a State contest. <laughs> Correctly predicting today's score of Iowa 44 and Minnesota State 3 was Luther Van Dam. <laughs> And that's his character in a nutshell. He's naive. He's not what you would call bright. Right. And just kind of bumbling. Yes. Uh, but you're right. The comic foil to... for Craig T. Nelson's main character. Absolutely. But that part was written specifically for him at the urging of his wife, Shirley. There oh. was a guy named Barry Kemp who was a friend of his. And had actually lived with them for a while out in L.A. when he was trying to get started. And um, 
Well, Jerry tells how Barry Kemp got the idea for Luther. Everything Luther, he lived with me when he first came out and was struggling and I was trying to get him going. He stayed with me and he knew everything I do. I was a junk food nut. Everything Luther does is what Jerry did. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm talking with Randy Dixon from the Prior Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History. Our subject this week is Jerry Van Dyke, former Arkansas resident. That's right. And we're up to his part on Coach, which was written by the creator of the show, Barry Kemp. Mm -hmm. And they go way back. As a matter of fact, this wasn't the first part that Barry Kemp had written for him. You remember the Newhart show? The one set in Vermont in an inn? Yes. Yeah. Um, there was a handyman. Tom Poston. Yes. That part, and Barry Kemp also created that show. Oh. And he wrote that part. The handyman? Yes, for Jerry Van Dyke. And he didn't get the part. Huh. So uh, this was sort of like the second attempt. And so here's an interview with Barry Kemp about how Jerry got the part of Luther. I created the Luther Van Damme character for Jerry, and since I had struck out once, I was determined that I wasn't going to strike out again. So I thought this time I was going to have no problem. I said, I've already, I've had a hit show and surely nobody's going to say no to me now. And uh, I told him that I wanted to use Jerry. And uh, same thing. They said, gee, uh, I don't think so. They said, that, I mean, has he ever been funny? And I said, he's really funny. And I said, no, he's very, very funny. And boy, I don't know. We're going to have to see that. They said, well, well, you'll have to bring him in because they said, we can't just approve that without seeing him do it. Well, Jerry is, uh, cannot audition. I mean, it's just, he's just awful. I mean, he's just, he's one of the most naturally funny people I've ever met in my life, but that's not what he does best. And so, and I'd been through this with him a new heart, and it was deadly. So uh, he, I said, okay, so he's gonna have to audition. So I asked him to come to my office and, and I said, just do it for me. Let's just, us do it together. And, and I knew he could do it because, I mean, I, I knew I, I could write for him and I knew it was in his rhythms and everything like that. And, and somehow, you know, he, again, he got nervous and, and it, it wasn't very good for me. <clears throat> so I thought, if it's not good here, it's not going to be good there. So uh, I didn't say this to him. I said, great, great, we'll, we'll set it up. And uh, I, I called ABC and I said, uh, I don't know how we can get Jerry in because I said he's he's not in town. He's on the East Coast with Stephen Eady uh, opening for them. He was actually going to for like a week, but I made it sound like somehow they were on tour for months. And I said, he's just not going to be available. But I said, can I send you a tape of, a, of an episode of Coming of Age that he had done for us, which was very funny. And uh, so they said, yeah, you can try it. So they sent the tape and they said, God, this is really funny. And I said, no, I'm telling you, he's terrific. And they go, well, okay, that's fine. Then we'll, we'll approve him. So <laughs> I called Jerry and I said, well, here's the good news. You got the part. The bad news is you got to get out of LA. <laughs> I said, I can't afford to have anybody see you. So uh, he went down to his place in Arkansas or whatever, <laughs> hung out there for a while. So. so we heard at the beginning of the segment that, uh, you know, Jerry hinting that, you know, he's known as Dick Van Dyke's little brother, um, kind of in his shadow. Um, well, here's an interview with uh, Dick and Jerry, mm -hmm. and Jerry kind of makes a joke about the whole thing. This happens to me constantly. Hey, hey, Jerry, we loved you on coach. Honey, come here. Dick Van Dyke's brother. <laughs> that happens to me all the time. That happens to me all the time. And they were both w wildly talented. Absolutely, in, in different ways. Right. Um, but, you know... Even though he's laughing about it, I think with comedy, there's mm -hmm. there's some truth. Sure. And uh, so I asked Shirley Van Dyke if there was like a brotherly rivalry or if Jerry ever felt like he was in his brother's shadow. And this is what she had to say. If Dick Van Dyke hadn't made it first, Jerry Van Dyke's career was on its way. He was Everybody thought Jerry was going to be a huge star. All the comedians said he would have been huge. But Dick happened, being older, his career happened first. Then he was introduced to the nation as his brother on the show. So he was then pegged as Dick Van Dyke's brother. From, and he was, he was in the shadow always. And, and it was hard to overcome because they looked kind of too much alike, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's like 
they you know so they they looked alike and and they didn't know where to, how to pigeonhole Jerry. They didn't know how to find the character that Barry Kemp later found the character that would you know would get, make Jerry's career. It may have come late, but he did get his his part. He did. Um, he did a few more things, but then was in a car accident and never really recovered. And he ended up dying here in Arkansas uh, in 2018 at, at age 86. And I asked um, his widow, Shirley, uh, you know, what she missed most about Jerry. Jerry was just naturally funny. And Dick talked about it at the memorial. He said, Jerry, he, Dick said at the memorial, he said, I was an actor that could do comedy. I could do comedy, but I'm an actor. i got to have a script, you know. He said Jerry was comedy. He said everything about him was funny. He said he just had a natural funny bone. And he said he was, the, he was absolutely natural. And he, Dick said Jerry was comedy, you know. And so, and that was his goal, that Jerry to make people laugh. He, I said, what a great career to be, to enjoy making people laugh. That's what he loved. And that's what uh, he did. And, you know, the brothers always remained close mm -hmm. over the years. Um, and they'd always make cameos in each other's programs. You know, you heard... Uh, Jerry on Dick's show at the right. beginning of the segment. That was in 1962. Well, in the 2010s, one of the last series that Jerry was on was The Middle. On ABC. That's correct. Mm -hmm. And he played, I believe, the grandfather. Or the... Yeah. Yeah. And um, Dick did make a cameo there, of course, as Jerry's brother. Of course. But... Um, they always had, you know, music and comedy in their lives. So why don't we close out as they closed out the show with a song? And before we do that, I'll say that Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Go to the Pryor Center's website. Just put Pryor Center in a search engine and search around to your heart's content. Thank you, Randy. Let's do two of a kind. And who's to say if we'll go the whole way? Hey, at least we got this far. Because we're two of a kind. For your information, we're two of a kind. That's right. Two of a kind. It's my observation, we're two of a kind. Like peas in a pot. Or birds of a feather. Alone or together you'll find that we are two. Ooh, ooh, two of a kind. One more time. That, that we, we are two of a kind. On tomorrow's Ozarks at Large, Opal Agafia considers her music. And she helps create a music festival. In 2017, I actually remember thinking, how do I explain my sound? You know, I don't really fit. In the genres, you would say Americana roots, right? Or country roots. But back then, I was just like, I wonder what my sound is, and I came up with Ozark Mountain Soul. Opal Gaffier, the Ozark Mountain Soul Fest 2023, and more on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF, and you can find past shows, stories, and interviews at ozarksatlarge.com. Morning Edition from NPR News helps you start your day informed and maybe even a little inspired. How is the language of classical music different than electronic music? It's the different way of looking at infinite possibilities. Wake up to broader horizons. Listen to Morning Edition every weekday. Morning Edition every weekday from 5 to 9 a.m. on 91.3 KUAF. And you can listen to us anywhere by streaming at KUAF.com. This is Ozarks at Large. Next month, the top finalists in the National History Day National Contest. Students from around the United States will gather in Washington, D.C. Malia Gorel, an eighth grader at Washington Junior High School in Bentonville, will be among the contestants after winning first place in her division at both regional and state events this year. She created a documentary about aviation pioneer and one-time Bentonville resident Louise Thaden. Last week, she came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. Malia says when she was looking for a subject for National History Day Project, she wanted to concentrate on somebody who had made a major impact on the world and who might be globally underappreciated. 
as I started to hear about Luisita more and more, I was like, you know what, actually, I could do about uh, this lady who grew up right where I am and who is interested in the same things as I am. So that was perfect. Okay, I want to talk about those interests here in a minute. Let's talk a little bit about the National History Day Project. What does this entail? What, what is, what's involved? Um, so I started in about November 15th about, and um, so you have to create an annotated bibliography with your primary and secondary sources, and then you have to do a process paper for the judges just to read over before each contest, and then you have to do a title page, mm-hmm. which... And that's basically all of the written materials. And then, of course, you have to do the documentary because that's what I entered in. You could either do... Documentary film, right? Yes. Okay. So you could do a documentary, a performance, uh, an exhibit, and a paper. So I chose to do a documentary. And once you do that, um, it's it's that's basically it. And the documentary is mostly compiled of photos and a voiceover and just clips of interviews. So you mentioned that you and Louise Thayden, separated by nearly a century, (laughs) have similar interests. Does that mean you have an interest in aviation? Uh, Yes. So my father's a pilot and he started out flying bush planes in Alaska and then he got more interested into um, flying private jets and more of the bigger planes. Um, So and I would get to go along on flights with him and just learn a lot about aviation and I'd get to talk to the cell tower and like operate the plane so and I knew that I really loved to do that with those experiences so uh, I know that I want to be a pilot and because Louise Thayden had those same interests like ever since she was a little girl about my age um, that was really cool. All right, you and I do not share that. I don't want to be a pilot ever. (laughs) That scares me but we do share a passion because about 30 years ago, I read this book, The Powder Puff Derby of 1929, and I interviewed the author who wrote that. It was the first time I'd ever heard of Louise Thayden. Um, you know, there was no uh, Thayden School then. There, I don't think the, there was a restaurant at the airport yet. There was Thayden Field. But the more I read about her and her pioneering ways, the more I developed this just great admiration for her. What did you find so thrilling about Louise Thayden? Um... After I did my first interview, I found out that she was uh, a very humble person because the person I interviewed, Miss Jordan Hot, she's a dif- director of Flight Oz. Um, she and Flight Oz is that organization that flies people around for tourism. Uh, yes, yeah. and um, so. She read her autobiography, and she learned that she was a very humble person. She didn't crave the attention that she really, truly deserved. So it just so happened that other people took the spotlight while Louise Zayden was making the world more friendly for women. She was, and she, of course, she was a contemporary of Amelia Earhart and and some of the other women who who really stood up and said, we can do this. Yes. Um, She was definitely a big part in that. And um, in most occasions, she actually bested Amelia Earhart and some of the other aviatrixes at the Powder Puff Derby in the Bendix race. She flew in the Bendix race the first year women were allowed in 1936. And it's actually um, quite humorous because in 1937, they didn't allow women to fly that year after. One difference between you and Louise Thayden is that when she was doing it, most people didn't think women could or should fly. Yeah. You're in a time when... That's not necessarily the case anymore. Yeah. Um, that I In my documentary, I used a few sources where it's actually heads of aviation like uh, Mr. Halliburton. He was president of Safeway Airlines at the time. And he was, like, saying that women shouldn't be flying in the Powder Puff Derby. Like, this shouldn't be allowed. And it's, like, not contributing uh, anything to aviation, and um, it just should be canceled. And I got to see that um, happen the more I read about her and the more I learned about her, that she was really fighting against people telling her that they shouldn't be doing it. Like, it shouldn't be allowed at all. What happens now with you and your documentary? Um, so after I won first place at the state, um, first and second at the state competition, get to go to nationals. I'm going to be, uh, proceeding to nationals in June. It will be held in Washington, D.C. 
and uh, I'll be competing uh, with about 170 kids. Um, about that's about my same age and grade that are doing an individual documentary. Well, best of luck. And thank you so much for telling more people about Louise Thaden. I have um, bored people at parties before because I <laughs> wanted to tell them about her. Yeah, and I'm really doing this because Louise Thaden, she's so important and it's just like, it really bothers me and I don't know why or how her story isn't told because um, if you were to ask someone like the most known aviatrixes or who's your favorite, uh, they would say <laughs> Amelia Earhart, mm -hmm. right? Um, but because not even, we're not even learning about Louise Slayton. I did a small uh, aviation section in about like third or fourth grade. They didn't like, they mentioned Amelia Earhart the most and maybe like one Bob, Bobby Trout, right? Mm -hmm. But that's it. And I was like, why is that? <laughs> so that really, it really surprised me. So I thought that needed to change. I'm with you 100%. Thank you so much for coming in. And uh, let us know what happens in D.C. Okay. Thank you so much. Malia Grell is an eighth grader at Washington Junior High School in Bentonville, and she'll be representing Arkansas at the National History Day National Contest in Washington, D.C. next month. She visited the Carver Center for Public Radio last week. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Ozark Mountain Daredevils helped craft the country roots rock sound of the 1970s, and the Springfield, Missouri-based group was created around the sound of an Arkansaier from the flat delta land of the southeast. John Dillon of Stuttgart was the only original member of the Ozark Mountain Daredevils who was playing professionally, and that was at a Springfield pizza parlor which drew students from Southwest Missouri State University. Dylan, who played guitar, mandolin, and dulcimer, showed local poet Steve Cash, another future daredevil, how to play harmonica. The Arkansas Countyan said he taught Cash harmonica the same way his own mother had taught him, telling him to carry the instrument with him always. John Dillon also organized a weekly jam at a local theater when his friend Larry Lee, who played guitar, piano, and drums, became bartender. Other area musicians like pianist Buddy Brayfield, guitarist Randall Chowning, and bassist Michael Soup Granda, who sometimes wore a Superman costume, all learned each other's songs, but the future Ozark Mountain Daredevils reportedly didn't even consider themselves an actual band. The owner of the theater where the musicians played thought otherwise. He worked to get a live tape of the group to music impresario John Hammond, who financed a demo. A staff producer for A&M Records and Glenn Johns, who had produced the debut of the Eagles, both flew to Missouri to hear the musicians in concert. But under pressure, the band faltered in performance. Afterwards, the producers were convinced to hear a post-gig acoustic performance, and the down-home version of Standing on the Rock by Stuttgart's John Dillon sealed the deal with a major label. A year and a half after first playing together, the musicians, which surely thought of themselves as a real band by now, were recording their debut in London, England. The band's debut album, The Ozark Mountain Daredevils, reflected the group's new name, shortened from Cosmic Corncob and his amazing Ozark Mountain Daredevils. The band found chart success quickly. If you want to get to heaven, heard here and written by Arkansas Dillon and Missourian Steve Cash, hit the top 25 in 1974. It remains a rock radio staple. With the biggest hit for the Ozark Mountain Daredevils came from their second album, It'll Shine When It Shines, named for another Dillon Cash composition. Although the album was recorded back home in Missouri, the album's true hit was a departure from the band's rootsy sound.
Jackie Blue hit number three in early 1975 with a falsetto vocal and a modern pop sheen. Although the group was reluctant to leave Springfield, the Ozark Mountain Daredevils began to tour the world and with some of the biggest names of the 1970s, Chicago, the Doobie Brothers, the Eagles, and others. The Ozark Mountain Daredevils continued performing and releasing albums through the 1970s. Dylan's Keep On Churning, heard here, is from the Daredevils' 1975 album, The Car Over the Lake. In 1977, theater owner Steve Canaday, who had cajoled John Hammond into hearing live tapes of the band in the first place, joined the group as the original lineup shifted. In 1978, Dylan and Cash appeared on a concept album about the American Civil War called White Mansions with Waylon Jennings, Eric Clapton, and others. In 1980, the Ozark Mountain Daredevils switched to the label CBS for one unsuccessful album, and the group began to peter out and focus on solo projects. In the late 1980s, the Ozark Mountain Daredevils began performing and recording again and found an audience demand overseas. In 2000, A&M Records released a 21-track best-of called Time Warp. In 2002, the band's long out-of-print catalog began to be reissued, with its third and fourth albums being released on CD. The Ozark Mountain Daredevils have never matched their early successes, but the nucleus of the original band, Missourian Steve Cash and Mike Granda, and Arkansas John Dillon remain together into the 21st century. Here's the title track from the 1974 second album from the Ozark Mountain Daredevils, It'll Shine When It Shines, co-written by Stuttgart, Arkansas's John Dillon. Stand a little push Cause he's got nine good lives to live But like my mama said You only live till you're dead And you got to give and give and give There's a pebble in the pond Going on and on Making waves and tides and ripples and rain There's a leaf in the wind They don't know where to end Chasing days and waves and wishes and dreams Seems like everyone is out looking for the sun Singing rain and pain on he who hesitates But it'll shine when it shines You might think I'm wasting time But I'm just a good old Yes, I'm just a good old boy that's learned away. It'll shine when it shines from the 1974 second album by the Ozark Mountain Daredevils, co-written by Stuttgart, Arkansas's John Dillon. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansongs. Arkansongs is a production of Experiment Station Studios. Producer is Keith Merckx. Arkansas since 1998. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Springdale, and Mossy Creek. The program today produced inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. I'm Kyle Kellams, back tomorrow at noon and 7. Thanks so much for being with us.